You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Breaking with tradition, the Middle East Institute last October appointed Dr. Paul Salem as its president, as his predecessors had all been retired U.S. ambassadors. Prior to joining MEI, the Middle East Institute, Paul was the founding director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, Lebanon between 2006 and 2013. He's the author and editor of a number of books and special reports published in English and Arabic, including Broken Orders, The Causes and Consequences of the Arab Uprisings, that's in Arabic, published in 2013, The Recurring Rise and Fall of Political Islam, published by the Center for Strategic and International Studies in 2015, And as you'll find out in a little bit, he's a musician and composer of Arabic-Brazilian jazz. You'll be able to listen to his music in a few minutes, and it can be found on iTunes. I'm especially pleased to have Paul on the podcast, since, as some of our listeners may know, my first position after graduate school was at the Middle East Institute. And after all these years, as Paul learned last week, I still remember the telephone number. Great to have you here in Dallas. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. So I was joking earlier this week with our team at the council, and I said, you know, I often spend some time composing questions, but I really don't need to do that with you because I could just throw out a word or two and just let you react. So let's just start with Iran. Well, the crisis between the U.S. and Iran is 40 years old. It's gone through a number of different variations. Most importantly, the attempt under the Obama administration A, to negotiate a nuclear deal, and through that precedent of negotiating a deal with Iran, hoping after that for a phase in which perhaps more negotiations and more de-escalation could happen. That might have happened perhaps in a Hillary Clinton administration with President Trump. We've obviously gone in the opposite direction. President Trump has withdrawn from the nuclear agreement with Iran, has imposed severe sanctions, And last week, we were on the brink of a major escalation that may have led to war. The issues with Iran are are thorny, they're complex, they're also deeply rooted in the politics of each country, not easy to resolve. Uh, The conflict with Iran, of course, affects the U.S. and Iran themselves, but there's also a conflict between Iran and Israel, and also conflict between Iran and some of the Arab Gulf countries, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. You mentioned the conflict last week, which was really quite concerning. Give us a sense of who do you think was responsible and how close did we get to brink of war? I think we're still on that slippery slope. I think it's very dangerous and very the, the risk is very serious. The reason for it is quite straightforward. The Trump administration, after withdrawing from the nuclear deal, has imposed a series of crippling sanctions on the Iranian economy. And they really are hurting the economy. And they now, really, never before. really hurting the economy. The economy has shrunk by about 7% already. Not all of the oil sanctions have fully kicked in yet. And the administration is promising or threatening additional sanctions on other sectors. Uh, I met with a number of colleagues, with Foreign Minister Zarif, the Iranian Foreign Minister in New York, three weeks ago. and. He was quite uncharacteristically direct and threatening, I would say, saying basically, look, the U.S. is bringing the Iranian economy to its knees. We will not stand by while this happens. We will use whatever means we have at our disposal. That would include security measures. 
and that might include threats on the soft targets, which are the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, rather than directly targeting uh, U.S. forces, which would immediately trigger a response. And indeed, that's what we saw uh, with attacks on Gulf shipping and on uh, Saudi oil pipelines and installations. Uh, so the, the makings of a face-off uh, are there, and they're not going to go away between now and the U.S. presidential election in November of but next year. But how do you see the politics within the administration? Because President Trump seems to be reluctant to use military force, doesn't want to get into a conflict, and yet two of his closest foreign policy advisors, National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, have, have not hidden in any way their desire, I think it's safe to say, for regime change. Uh, you're right. Uh, John Bolton in particular, and I would say uh, Bibi Netanyahu of Israel, uh, would like the U.S. to use its military might to strike at Iran, not only to cripple it economically. Now, crippling it economically also, from the view of John, uh, John Bolton or Bibi Netanyahu, greatly weakens the regime and reduces the amount of money it can spend on groups like Hezbollah or proxies in Syria or the Houthis in Yemen or militias in Iraq. But there are those who, not favoring an invasion, but favoring using military power, deliver to Iran a kind of a staggering blow and then keep it under sanctions for a long time. Maybe a little bit like the Saddam regime after the Kuwait, the war for the liberation of Kuwait, was sort of squeezed, isolated, weakened until then the invasion of 2003. One thing that I've wondered about, let's say Iran wanted to decrease uh, some of the, the pressure. Do they have the ability to do so with some of, like, say, with Hezbollah or some of the other groups that they've supported? Uh, well, they have been offering, in order to decrease the pressure, a prisoner swap. And that's something that actually Foreign Minister Zarif sort of proposed when he was here. That would be a very small, uh, important matter, but a small one given the size of the crisis. That now, would be a prisoner swap with the United States. Yes, U.S. Uh, prisoners in Iran and Iranian prisoners in the United States. But I mean, States. with the various militias that are operating in Syria and elsewhere, can they just wave a magic wand and say, we're no longer going to support Hezbollah, and Hezbollah will back off and retreat? Well, that's what the U.S. administration wants. That's part of the 12 demands that uh, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo put forward. Uh, the current expectation or reality is that Iran is not going to go in that direction. I mean, that could happen in the context of a wide-ranging negotiation between the U.S. and Iran, uh, you know, sort of a, a grand bargain, as it were. Yes, Iran could certainly stop, you know, arming and financing Hezbollah, could stop arming and financing militias in Syria and Iraq and Yemen. It can do that, uh, but it's not going to do that uh, for free, and it's not going to do that simply because it's under pressure. And when I mentioned at the beginning of this, the politics of all of this inside Iran, in Tehran itself, that with this uh, sort of bellicosity on both sides, there's a tendency for the hardliners to, you know, dig in their dig heels. In, exactly. And for the public to sort of take this more as a nationalist kind of challenge. Rally around the flag. For the time being. Uh, for the time being. I think President Obama had it right in that he was very tough on sanctions and very forthcoming in terms of wanting to negotiate. 
that the essence of negotiation is getting to yes, getting the other side to agree to something. What we're doing now is we're putting maximum pressure on them, and we're also politically and through our messaging make it, making it the most difficult for them to climb down from their tree and negotiate. And I think we will not see any resolution of this until after the presidential election of, of November 2020. Now that's 18 months you have to get through uh, without a major escalation. Let me ask you about a, another story that certainly was in the news last week, and that's the beginning of the so-called Jared Kushner peace plan. Um, conference was announced to be held in Bahrain with Saudi Arabia and Israel, I understand, attending. But there's one party that has a, is not going, and of course that's the Palestinian Authority. Where is this going to go? It's going to go nowhere. Uh, it's quite clear that the Trump administration has aligned itself not only with Israel, and not only with the right wing, but with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, that was clear in the um, legitimization, or at least from the U.S. side, acknowledgement of the Israeli, the illegal Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights, using uh, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which was a, was which was a big concession. What the Israelis want to propose to the Palestinians, which is in effect, I think, what the Jared plan will be, uh, the Israeli right wing wants to propose the following, that Israel will maintain control, sovereign control of anything that matters uh, on the West Bank uh, in particular, which is the borders, the airspace, security, all of the major issues, will maintain most of its settlements and will probably annex uh, most of them where it can to sort of main, mainland Israel, if you want to call it that. And then in exchange for that, offer the Palestinians a piece of territory within the West Bank, but the sweetener would be uh, promised or large amounts of promised economic investment and economic aid, and that's where Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates come in. Now from the mentality maybe of the Trump administration, or I dare say the Trump family, you know, it's money that counts, and real estate and money, and if you give them enough money, they'll go for it. Uh, from the Palestinian perspective, they're fighting for their national rights, for their identity, to have their own, uh, you know, state that they can run themselves. Uh, and no, and the mood is such that certainly no Palestinian leader uh, could even agree to such a thing, even if he wanted to. So bottom line? Uh, bottom line, it ain't going to happen. Already, almost all the Palestinian well, leaders and businessmen that were invited to this meeting have already declined. Let me ask you about another issue, and that is speculation that the Trump administration is planning to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Do you think that will happen, and what will be the impact across the region? Because certain countries like Tunisia view the Muslim Brotherhood very different than, say, Saudi Arabia or Egypt, and I gather that it was the Egyptian president who pushed Trump to do this. Mm -hmm. This was floated early in the uh, Trump administration as well, and then was shelved for a while, and then came back again when uh, uh, President Sisi, after President Sisi recently visited Washington. In reality, the group that could be designated would probably be the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, not the Muslim Brotherhood sort of broadly conceived. Uh, and that that is for a number of reasons. First, that this designation is effectively a favor for President Sisi and for Egypt, uh, and that the Egyptian uh, Muslim Brotherhood is kind of a discrete organization that you could at least identify. Uh, that would not affect the Muslim Brotherhood affiliates that are uh, 
that share power in Tunisia or that share power in Morocco or that are present in Jordan or in Kuwait uh, or in other places. It would affect members of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and there are many of those currently in Turkey. Of course, most of the leaders are in jail in Egypt, but there are others in Turkey. Uh, there's a few in Europe, there's maybe a few in the US, and there's a number of organizations and institutions uh, which are affiliated with the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. So it would have ramifications, but not, I mean, since most of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood is largely in jail already, it wouldn't be a game changer for Tunisia or Morocco or Kuwait or Jordan or other countries where there are Muslim Brotherhood groups. Well, before we listen to some of your music, and I want to hear about that, mm -hmm. tell us about the Middle East Institute and how you're changing it now as president. We have just another two minutes or so. Well, as you know, the Middle East Institute is, is old. It's 73 years old. It's the oldest Middle East institution uh, in Washington. See, that makes me feel old because I used to say it was 50 years old uh -oh. <laughs> when I worked there. <laughs> We're all growing. <laughs> uh, it currently has three pillars. Uh, one is the policy think tank that uh, I ran for five years be before becoming president. Uh, and the think tank has uh, about 10 sort of full-time scholars and about 50 non-resident scholars. Everything's on the website. Uh, we work on everything from Turkey to Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Arab countries, Israel, Palestine, and so on. The second pillar of the institution is our educational side. As you mentioned, we teach uh, the languages of the region. We have a lovely library, and we have a refereed journal called the Middle East Journal. Uh, the third pillar is a fairly new pillar. It's an arts and culture pillar. We are moving into our new building uh, next month on the same plot where the old uh, uh, sort of brownstone that you know uh, was, uh, but it'll be a brand new building. It will very have close to DuPont Circle. Very close to DuPont Circle. It's 1763 N Street for those of you in the neighborhood. And it will have uh, an art gallery for the first time, among other things in this And if we want to follow the institute, we go to mei.org and... We you go to mei.edu. It's registered me. as an educational institution. Okay. So mei.edu. Now tell me about provider. your music, because we have just another minute, and I do want to conclude with giving our listeners a chance to hear. Yeah, me. well, I couldn't make a living as a musician, so here I am. But I, I've been involved in music since I was a little kid. The music I do, he, I do, which which I compose, and I've produced two CDs when there used to be CDs in the olden days, but. It's music that's now available on uh, all the sort of apps. Which one should so we on. listen to? Uh, Baghdad okay. is an interesting We'll do tune. that. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much. Congratulations on your new position. Thank and you, Jim. I hope that this will have an opportunity to bring your scholars to Dallas and to other world affairs councils all across the country. You do great work. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.